you guys are way over there. Like, forget peripheral vision. Like, you're, you're, a, you're up. This is, yeah. Oh. Uh, two comments. First one is, I'm just amazed how you can get so much truth out of, like, one passage, and it's all biblical. I'm just I'm really appreciative of that. The other thing is, when you're talking about Aaron and about this having to be cleansed from sin to be the priest, I've always looked at all the sacrifices from the Old Testament and how thousands and thousands of animals and gallons of blood, and it revealed how bad our sin is and how great a sinner. But on the other side of that, I just was thinking today is how great a sacrifice Christ was to die once as a man and replace all that stuff that had to be done constantly. And when the people saw that, I mean, it, it, it had to be a mind shift for them to, wait a minute, it's like one man died and replaced all of that. It's just, it's just amazing. Yeah. And it's just, it's, God is so gracious to give us pictures so we can understand kind of a little bit. Mm. And, and the other thing of the crucifixion, you look at that and the world looks at it and it's like, well, that was horrible, but that was just in the earthly. It wasn't the spiritual thing that was going on, mm. but it, God used that to kind of show us how bad yeah. what he had to suffer for us. Yeah. We, yeah, the, the Bible's repetition on certain themes suggests we don't get, and one of the things we don't get is how bad sin is. Our men's group went through Ezekiel, and you enter this phase in Ezekiel where God's telling Israel, you're a dirty, whoring whore. I mean, really, it's just repetitive. No, no, let me tell you how bad of a dirty, whoring whore you are. And it just keeps going, and it keeps going. And then one more chapter, I know you, and you walk away from it going, okay, we don't get it. <laughs> we don't get it. I think that's one of the reasons we don't get, we can wrestle with the justice of hell because we're tempted to think, well, it's bad, but it can't be that bad. I mean, our sin can't be that bad to deserve an eternity in hell. Um, and so, yeah, the sacrificial system is this constant, there's constantly things are dying around you so that you can live, constantly. I mean, the, the, the temple would have been like a slaughterhouse, exactly. especially around Passover. And we, we were reading how many different sacrifices Aaron's offering. And then he has to start the new day with an offering for himself. Jesus, one offering, done. I mean, just done. It's, it's amazing. I mean, that's, the, that's the point the author of Hebrews is making. And we sort of take that for granted. But if you t- put your mind in the economy of the Old Testament, just this constant wave offerings, free will offerings, sin offerings, burnt offerings, just constantly taking place. And it's, it's all done. It's over. One sacrifice. You know, it, it's, yeah. It's, yeah a be- the, it's a better sacrifice. And it's a better and the, priesthood, and it's a better covenant. The visual and the smells. Oh, yeah. Been horrendous, just, yeah. yeah. No, and God took measures that we'd get it. I mean, even little things like the Passover lamb that had to live in your house for the week. Uh, for a week. And then you have to put your hand yeah. on the back of its neck. And you have to slit its throat. The priest doesn't do that for you. I mean, you're going to feel its death shudders. This lamb who you've grown a little accustomed to over the last week. Who's dying because you sinned. I mean, at every level, smell, touch, 
It's meant to communicate the reality of the sinfulness of sin. And then Jesus was there for that last week, being observed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. No, yeah, that's, you, no, yeah, I just did the no, yeah thing. Yeah, sorry, I'll, I'll try to cash myself. Okay, other questions? Where I'm going to go, if we don't have a lot of questions, is back to Hebrews and go a little more slowly through 7 and 8. But that's, first I'll open it up to you guys. Ron Ludwig. No, it's it's just them. He's not he's not doing a public ministry. It's I think Luke wants us to take it as the sort of graduate school for the disciples before they go out. So go to Acts one. He just makes a passing reference to it um, in his introduction. In Acts one, it's in verse two. Uh, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them. So this is not a public thing. This is appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So we even get some of the the topic of teaching is the kingdom of God, which is why I made the little... um, Okay, my, my joke that three people got, I'll explain to you. Um, as people approach and look at eschatology, the study of last things, uh, the, the big major viewpoints, and, and good people that we're going to see in heaven differ on this. I mean, our church, I believe, I don't think, I, I think it's clear enough, but you, you don't have to be a bad guy to have a different view, right? Good brothers and sisters differ on this. I go to conferences with guys who speak that aren't coming from the same direction, so... Um, what you, and what they usually all relate around the millennium. The millennium, of course, is that thousand years referenced, what, seven times in Revelation chapter 20? We don't need to go there. But Revelation talks about a thousand years. A thousand. So what do you do with that thousand years? Um, pre-millennialism, which is our church holds to, is the view that it's yet future. We are living in the time before that thousand years. That the thousand years are not now, it's later, but there will be this reign of Christ. That's pre-millennialism, and you can break that down to the sub-subcategories. Then there's post-millennialism, which is the belief that the world, we're sort of in the millennium now, the world's getting better and better and better and better and better and better. I I would have thought the last election cycle would have destroyed post-millennialism completely, but um, nope. Uh, No, but um, and that the world's going to get more and more Christian, and ultimately, all the countries of the world will be Christian, and then and only then will Christ return. That's post. We don't need to pick on anything, but probably the most common view. um, It's certainly the view of Roman Catholicism. um, It's going to be the view of most of the reformers, Luther, Calvin. It's going to be the view of most Presbyterian churches. Is called ah millennialism, and the alpha primitive, like ah moral, asymmetrical, is the negative. Negative. So they, their, that view is the view that there is no literal reign of Christ on earth. He's reigning right now in my heart spiritually. That Christ is the spiritual millennium. And the, and the rule and Psalm 2 and all that it describes are being fulfilled right now in the church. It's a very 
popular view and held to by good people. I was just making a slight jab at that. My point being, Jesus for 40 days has taught the disciples about the kingdom of God after he's opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and they come out of those 40 days saying, now, is the kingdom going to be now? They are either the most... And so you could read this as, man, these guys are still bumbling. I, I don't think that's where Luke would have us. He's, the problems they've had before have been fixed. Their minds have been opened. They've been taught by the Lord. Peter's certainly going to hit the ball out of the park in chapter 2 at Pentecost. So that was sort of my little swiping hopefully playful jab that three people got when I said he, he hadn't yet convinced them of all millennialism. Okay, you can laugh. You should be able to get the joke now. Okay, okay, they get it. Okay. Um, but so, so Ron, he was teaching them about the kingdom of God over 40 days. And the point I also made is when Luke says he opened their mind to understand the scriptures, that could have taken place over 40 days. Like it's not necessarily just now their minds are open. He could be referring to those 40 days that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures as he's teaching them. So I I don't know. It's entirely possible that that refers to the 40 days. But it's not a public going around preaching ministry. It is a training and teaching of the apostles and the disciples ministry. Um, Okay, Jacob. Before we uh, move on to Hebrews, could you just comment on something that's really stood out to me in the last couple of Sundays the difference in the understanding of the disciples mm. about you, you emphasized how slow they were to come to understand right. these things. And now today, their responses, you said, were just spot on. You yeah. know, that, that, could you just comment on that, the difference in their preparedness and their understanding? Yes. Thank you. Yes, yeah. One of, the, one of the hallmarks of historical authenticity is the way the gospel consistently puts the apostles in a bad light, especially Peter. Uh, if, if you're trying to found a religion, that's not generally the type of stuff you want to do while these guys are still alive. You know, you don't want your first pope denying Jesus three times. Um, sorry. You, you don't want to do that. And so what we are see- seeing is Christ's patience and forbearance with them. We see their weakness, and then we see him equipping and training them, because the, int- the implication from the introduction of the book of Acts is Jesus began to do some stuff. Let me tell you what the rest of the stuff he did. We're meant to see Jesus at work in the events of Acts, and Luke wants it to be incredibly clear that the difference between these scared, Peter's running away from a servant girl um, men, to the people who, a few chapters into Acts, the Pharisees, these men are turning the whole world upside down. You know, with boldness and authority and, and, and power and thousands getting converted. It's not Jesus picked the most strategic, intelligent planners who came up with an unbeatable program, eight-step program for building the church. It's these bumbling idiots are filled with the Spirit of God, submissive to His will, and therefore God working through them is doing mighty things. So it's, it's back to the glory goes to God, the blessing goes to us. That, that tends to be the way God works. We get blessed, He gets the glory. And um, Luke has highlighted that. And the difference is the Spirit. The, the Spirit is the one who is to equip them. That's what Jesus refers to at the end of Luke, in Luke 24, power from on high. Right, so verse 49. 
Behold, I am sending you the promise of the Father, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And that's going to be fulfilled at Pentecost. So the disciples, apart from the Spirit, are bumbling doofuses like us. And that's, I mean, you read that and you're like, there's hope for me, you know. <laughs> because it would be discouraging if Jesus just picked the most effective, the most brilliant. Now, he does pick. Paul is brilliant. When you try to track Paul's reasoning through, like, Romans, the guy is really smart and really tight reasoning. But he's less common than some of these guys. I mean, Paul is a master of the old. I mean, Paul, Paul's special. But the, the, the 11, the, most of them are fishermen, tax collector, as a, a would-be terrorists. That's what the zealots were. Um, I mean, it's an unlikely bunch. And then the early church is filled, you go to Corinth, with slaves and freedmen and masters and men and women and Greek citizens and Jewish people. It's, the church is this hodgepodge. And Paul says that's the glory of the church is in its variegatedness. So I don't know if that's where you wanted me to go, but that's where I went. Other thoughts or questions? Um, oh. So I'm just curious, Orthodox Jews, do they continue to slot, take animals in? The Orthodox, because I don't hear any Des Moines having them in their homes and then taking them to the... Right. Whatever. No, that's honestly the few times I talk to people who are Jewish. That's where I try to go. Is like if they if they if you claim you're keeping the law, how's how does that work? Now their answer, they do have an answer. Somehow, Israel during the Babylonian captivity, the Israelites could remain faithful to God even though there was no temple worship system. So they would say, we don't know how that worked, but God didn't totally disown his people when they were in Babylon. He, was, he sent a prophet to them in Babylon, and there were faithful Jews living in Babylon, even though they were removed from the temple worship system. Um, the response to that is, yeah, but what did they do the second they got back to the land? <laughs> they built the temple and started doing sacrifices. Why haven't you done that? You know, you could save up and move to Israel. Um, so that, that, that would be their response. They, they would claim that the sacrificial system, I believe they would claim, the sacrificial system is being fulfilled through a series of prayers and offerings they might give. But there is a movement within um, Judaism that wants to get that stuff going. They, they got the ashes of a red heifer just recently. They bred one. And they've got the goal. I mean, it's called the Temple Institute. You can look it up online. They, right now they run it as a... Um, as a museum, but it's a museum that's meant, if they ever get control of the Temple Mount long enough, this thing could go up fast because they've got the, I mean, my wife spent a semester in Israel and they have like the golden candelabra in bulletproof glass in the middle of a square. They've got the brazen altar. They've got the accoutrements as described in Exodus made out of solid gold. They got the, the I mean, so there's a faction of Judaism that absolutely would love nothing more than to get a temple built on the Temple Mount and get the sacrificial system going. So even within Judaism, there might be people who are on that side leaning to things. And no, it's just a bunch of prayers, and it's a bunch of, it's been transmuted into something else. Civilized, you know, not, not a slaughterhouse religion anymore. So, so within Judaism, there's a spectrum. Um, there are some who very much want to do that. And then there are some who believe it's all just become sanitized into prayers and offerings and things.
It's a good question, but then that's one of the chinks I go to. I mean, if I ever meet someone, whether sometimes you meet Christian sort of, you know, I'll use the word cult, cults, where they're obsessed with trying to keep the law, the first question I ask them is, when's the last time you went to Israel? Because in Deuteronomy 16, three times a year, all your men must go to the place that I, the Lord, will choose, which becomes Jerusalem, for the feasts. I said, when's the last time you went to Jerusalem? How's, how's your law keeping going? I mean, so there's another line you could take them on. Even if you grant the sacrificial system, you're obligated under the Mosaic law three times a year. I mean, and they, Moses, I mean, Mary and Joseph did it. They, I mean, and Jesus did it. He traveled from Galilee on foot. I'm much more difficult than we would have buying an airplane ticket. So for someone that wants to say, well, that's really difficult, that's no excuse. I don't see Moses making exception clauses. If you will mean to keep the law, keep it. Um, so there's a number of cracks in any attempt to claim to keep the law, which is a great way if you can do it without being abrasive to, to question either a Jewish person or a, or a legalist trying to harmonize Christianity and the, the law because those are some really obvious things that, you know, I've never met somebody who's gone three times a year to Jerusalem. Um, maybe I will someday, but... Good, good question. Anything else? Oh, Siobhan. Can I ask you um, maybe touch on the differences between the way we bless one another, the way we bless God, and that covenant making? Yes, that's a, another great question. There are three distinct things. So my quote that I read from Calvin, I, I think, is exactly right. When we bless, when men bless one another, it is nothing else than praying in behalf of them. So if I'm going to bless Sarah, it would be something like, Lord, Sarah, may the Lord bless you. Lord, please bless Sarah. I mean, something like that. I'm petitioning God on your behalf. Right? That's a blessing. You pray for your kids. Um, God blessing us is actually doing the thing. So we're just, we're appealing to an authority. God has no authority. He just does. And when we bless God, we are not granting him some of our benefit. I'm going to give you my blessing. What we're doing is we're responding to and proclaiming his blessedness. Um, he is blessed. He is, um, he alone is blessed. And we're just confessing and speaking aloud the glories of God. We're not asking God to do nice things for God. Right? And we're certainly not giving God nice things that, that um, are somehow benefiting him. So no, we're doing very different things when God blesses us, when we bless each other, and when we bless God. Very good, helpful um, distinction. Absolutely. Anything else? Now let's turn to Hebrews chapter 7. While you turn there, um, one of the things I'll, I'll pick I'll pick up off of what Mr. Kruger said is we are not familiar with we didn't grow up with um, a sacrificial system, a temple, or priests unless you maybe unless you grew up Catholic um, then maybe you did. And so when, 
the author of Hebrews goes on about how Jesus is a better priest, we might be tempted to think, so what? So what? To any Jewish person reading this, that's a big deal. The priesthood is a big deal. Aaron's consecration is a big deal. First, trivia question. Anyone remember how it was that the tribe of Levi became the priests? Yes, because at the, uh, the, the worship of the golden calf, Moses said, who is on the Lord's side? And the sons of Levi, the tribe of Levi, came to him, and they were willing to take their swords out. And Moses said, okay, take your sword out and walk from one side of the camp to the other, and I don't care if you come across your brother, your mother, your father, your child, you cut him down. And they did it. And Moses says, today you have consecrated yourself a priesthood. And in his closing blessing, in fact, let's just keep your thumb here. Go to Deuteronomy 33. He references it. So the priesthood was not cheaply obtained. The tribe of Levi showed remarkable loyalty to God, and God rewarded them with the priesthood. And so Deuteronomy 33 is Moses' closing blessing, right? So Deuteronomy 33 This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. And pick it up in verse 8. He gets to the tribe of Levi. He's going to bless them tribe by tribe by tribe. And of Levi, he said, give to Levi your Thuman and your Urim. These are the the, the accoutrements, the breastplate that the priest would wear for his office and by which God would at times reveal his will, like which tribe should go up to battle. Anyway, and your urn to your godly one, whom you tested at Massah, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. He's referencing, and if you, we won't go there, but if you want to read the cross-reference, it's Exodus 32, 25 to 29, is the event with the golden calf worship, and Moses has them do that. And that's why they're given the priesthoods. The priesthood's a big deal. And, and Levi doesn't get a tract of land. Levi gets cities scattered all across of, all of Israel. Because the priests had two primary functions. They ran the temple. And they taught the people and did sacrifices for the people in the local synagogues around that area. So not all of your... No, wait a second. I got to check. Can you offer a sacrifice outside of the temple? No, you cannot, once they set the temple. So they're teaching Israel. They, they could perform washings and other things, but they're not offering sacrifices outside of the temple. Good. Thank you, Zeb. No uncertainty in that voice. Okay. Um, so they're, they're, they're doing that. And then they'd have lots, and they'd go up by lot. That's how Zechariah is in the temple, to, to serve in the temple. So, that's the, so the priests are around them constantly. And as a Jewish male... You're going to the temple three times a year. Every year you're doing the Day of Atonement for sin offerings. You're doing numerous other offerings. So you're going in and out of the temple. You're seeing the slaughterhouse. You're seeing the blood. You're interacting with priests. And what you're getting from this is the only reason the wrath of God isn't consuming you is because of this constant flow of animal death that is holding off God's wrath. We know now it's not actually removing it, but it's, it's like a temporary buffer, you know, um, And in that context, the author of Hebrews wants to make it clear that not only is Jesus the Messiah and the King of Israel, not only is he their great prophet like Moses, 
But Jesus is a great high priest. Um, and he begins making that point in Hebrews 7, 1. Um, no, he begins making that point in Hebrews 5. But we'll pick it up in 7, 1. <clears throat> Actually, go to the end of 6. Let's, let's uh, go back a little further to 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor. We sang that this morning, right? Christ the sure and that's the text that comes from. A hope that enters in the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And most Israelites go, Boy, what? Melchizedek? Melchizedek, what? And then he's got to explain. For this Melchizedek, and now he's, the, the short version is, the author of Hebrews' argument is this. Jesus is a priest. The, priests have, the, the tribe of priests is the tribe of Levi. Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. Otherwise, he couldn't be a claimant to the Davidic throne. So Jesus shouldn't, under the Mosaic law, be allowed to be a priest. But he is a priest. So how does that work? He's not a priest, according to the Mosaic Law. He's a priest according to something far older than the Mosaic Law. And the, the argument of the author of Hebrews is this priest that Abraham runs into. Abraham goes and he fights these um, ten kings, kinglets, really. I mean, they say king, but probably city ruler. And he, he meets Melchizedek, comes out of Salem, which is what will later become Jerusalem. And Melchizedek comes out and he blesses Abraham, and Abraham tithes a tenth foot he owns to him. And the author of Hebrews' point is, what made you think that Levitic priesthood is the only priesthood going? There's at least one other priesthood, because Melchizedek's a priest, and he's not a Levite. And that predates and antecedes the um, Levitic priesthood. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what Melech Zadach means. My son Zadok, righteous. And Melech, or Molech, you hear sometimes, means king or ruler. So the Molechs were just the names of these powers that the, the Canaanites would worship, demonic powers. So Melech Zadok, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. His name, first of all, means king of righteousness. Then he is the king of Salem, or Shalom, king of peace. Um, and then, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Which has led some people to argue that this is actually telling us that Melchizedek is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. I don't think so, but that would be the text for why they'd think that. Um, I think 
what the author of Hebrews means when he says about father, mother, genealogy, is if you read through the book of Genesis, anytime anybody who's anybody shows up, they get a full genealogy a number of days. So you read through Seth lived so many years, begot so many sons, and then he died. And Noah lived this many. You get their genealogy. Anybody of any importance gets beginning and end of days and their, their genealogy and who their father and their mother were. Melchizedek shows up, none of that. So I think verse 3 is simply referencing in the text of Genesis, he is without father or mother, genealogy, neither having beginning of days or end of life. There's no record of those things in Genesis. If you take it to mean literally he had no father, no mother, no end of days, then yeah, you're dealing with a pre-incarnate Christ. Um, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And these descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. So he's arguing a hierarchy of greatness. The Levites receive gifts from the people. The people tithe to the Levites, but Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. And then he's going to argue, and Levi is inferior to Abraham. Because remember, the the logic is the the father is greater than the son. The the father and the grandfather is greater than him, and the further back you go, the greater the man. And so um, that's why Christ's challenge, who is this man, who is this son of David to whom David says, the Lord said to my Lord? Who's David's Lord? It's bumping the Jewish notion that whoever this descendant of David is, David surely must be greater than him. And Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, this Davidite of whom David speaks, he calls his Lord. So that's, we'll keep moving. Um, verse six, but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still on the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So he's just saying, who's greater, Melchizedek or Levi? Melchizedek. Why? Because Abraham is greater than Levi, and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. So whose priesthood is superior in glory? Melchizedek. Whose came first? Melchizedek. That, that's the argument for the superiority. Okay? So, verse 11. Now, he's going to move on to why we need a new priesthood. Because remember, the Levitic priesthood's been going for a long time. And what he's basically saying is that and the temple, that's all come to an end. We've got a new priest, and he doesn't die, so he doesn't need a replacement. Um, now, if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, For under it, the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? The first point he's going to make is that the um, Mosaic covenant was built, built into it was obsolescence. Built into it was obsolescence. And that should be plain to see to anyone reading the law. That, that Moses was under no illusion that the law was going to get them all the way home. In fact, in, in Deuteronomy 31, Moses tells them, look, when you get deported, when God drives you off this land, because you're not going to keep this covenant, then if you remember and in your heart, humble yourself, then he, you know, and he tells you what will happen. But he's making that point here. 
For if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named in the order of Aaron? For where there is a change of priesthood, there is necessarily a change in law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. So he's pointing out now, you, you might say, if the, if the Levitical priesthood was good enough, we wouldn't need a different priest. So let me show you why the Levitical priesthood isn't. Um, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Right? So he's bringing up the fact that Jesus can't be a priest from Aaron or Levi. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, and he quotes Psalm 110.4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And that's when we pick up where I read earlier, and it's not without an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you're a priest forever. And to try to summarize briefly what the author of Hebrews is saying is this. Psalm 110, if, if, if reading the books of Moses didn't make it clear that Moses understood, this isn't taking us all the way home. Psalm 110 should do that. Psalm 110 is written by David. and In it, he speaks of a descendant, a future king, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your throne. So this is a king. And in that same psalm, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the argument is this. In Psalm 110, announcing a future king, David descendant from Judah, will also be a priest. It announces that someday... We're not going to need the Levitical priesthood anymore. Psalm 110.4, that's the argument. Psalm 110.4 announces this coming Davidite, this coming son of David, who will be this great exalted one to the right hand of the Father, and he will be a priest. That announcement makes it crystal clear the Levitical priest is going to terminate at some point. It's not going to go on forever. That's, that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's trying to deal with the objection. The, the objection we wouldn't be thinking but the Jewish audience absolutely would, which is, wait a second, how can a person from Judah be a priest? So that's why he's spending all this ink addressing a question that we don't naturally rise up. You go, okay. Um, I want to get to the second half here for why it matters, because we'll start seeing what priests do. And, and then hopefully by the time we see that, you will be excited that you have a great high priest. So... For the law made nothing perfect, verse 19, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it's not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such with, without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, Psalm 110. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priest, and he's going to show you, let me show you why Jesus' priest and his covenant is better. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They're constantly dying, you know, every 60, 80 years or so um, because they're prevented by death from continuing. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So 
Levitical priesthood, they die. Jesus, he doesn't. So there's the first point where it's better. And then don't miss verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And that's something he's doing now. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives to plead for me. That, that's where this is coming from. And it's better, better than anything the temple and Aaron and the Levites ever could do. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. And we, we saw that in Leviticus 8 and 9. First for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints the Son, who has been made perfect forever. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. That's Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So he's been quoting Psalm 110 in the previous chapter. He's still referencing it. Um, a minister in the holy place, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So what he's saying is, well, what do priests do? Well, one of the things priests do is they offer sacrifices. And they give gifts. Okay, well, then Jesus needs to offer a sacrifice. Okay, let's talk about that. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So you can read through Exodus, and there's the tabernacle code, and you make them just like this, and the pomegranate you know, dangles just like that, and you make the... the, the uh, the, temp, the table for the showbread, just like this. There's a pattern. God's very specific. Um, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. And then he's going to go on to actually compare the covenants. Um, but here, here's the point. We need a priest. We need someone interceding on our behalf to God. And we have a high priest in Jesus. And then, here's, here's the really cool thing. Go to 1 Peter. Go to 1 Peter and then we'll go to Revelation. And then I think our time will be up. So, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1, I think. Uh, let me find it. Either right at the end of one or beginning of two. No, it's two. It is two. Okay. Okay. So, um, verse four, two, four. As you come to him, and the metaphor is going to be Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, and upon this cornerstone, he is building a holy temple for God, and we are that temple. The church is the temple of the living God. Uh, the, the scripture can speak of you individually as a believer as the temple of the Holy Spirit, but, uh, 
Paul does that in 1 Corinthians 6. That's why you shouldn't sleep with prostitutes. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you, you all, are the temple of God? And so he's using that corporate picture here. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, they quote Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, sorry, and a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. If you are a Christian... You are a priest or a priestess. Go to Revelation chapter 1, where this point is again made abundantly clear. Um, Revelation chapter 1, and it's, there it is. Verse, uh, middle of verse 5, where the paragraph starts. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now we're priests. In fact, you can go back on the sermon archive in 2017. On Reformation Sunday, usually on Reformation Sunday, it's the last Sunday in November, we'll do a message with a slightly looking at historical doctrinal issue. And the last one I did was the Reformation of the Priesthood of the Believer. And try to give you in four minutes why that practically matters. When Luther had his showdown with Rome, Rome had no intention of debating the matter. No intention whatsoever. It wasn't until much later that they were forced to. Their initial claim was, who on earth are you to disagree with us? By what right can you interpret the Bible on your own? We've had an ecumenical council. We got all the bishops together. They decided what it meant. You're just some upstart monk. That, that's, the, that's their charge. And Luther's answer is the priesthood of the believer. So their, Rome's view was if common, everyday people who weren't priests, because of course Rome has priests and non-priestly classes. The non-priests, how on earth could they be expected to read this and understand it? They'd get confused. They'd run into error. They need the priests to... Yes, Zeb? Uh, just curious, are you going to touch on Luke 14 and the cost of discipleship and tie that back into the Levites? Because you should. Okay, I got time. I did in the message on Luke 14. If we have a moment, I will. Yes, thank you. That's, that'll be a good place to land this plane. Okay, in fact, turn to Luke 14. As I get exhorted by Zeb. Um, so, so Luther's answer is, the scripture teaches that every believer is a priest to God. 
And as a priest of God, every believer then is authorized to read God's word. The priest would teach the people um, the scriptures. And so we, by virtue of being priests, can read for ourselves without some teaching authority telling them what it means. Well, if, if you ever wonder why my sermons take so long, part, part of the reason might just be my weakness and error, but there's another sense in which I feel the need to show my math because I'm not a pope. I can't just tell you what it means. I need to reason with you why I think it means what it means. And you should not believe what I say unless you're persuaded. Because I am not some spiritual authority. I'm a priest just like you. Um, you have the authority to read and understand the Bible. And so what I'm endeavoring to do is say, okay, I've been, the church has freed me to devote more time to study and and I, and I hope I've got some gifting, and I hope it's beneficial, but I need to persuade you. I'm not saying, hey, because I'm an elder and because I'm the pastor, this is what it means, take it. If I did that, I could cut two-thirds of my message out. Here's the answer. i got to show my math. got to show my math. And you should never take someone's word for what the Bible means. You should always test Scripture with Scripture um, because you're, we're priests. Another way we're priests is we are interceding on behalf of the world. God, remember in 2 Corinthians 5, making his appeal through us, be reconciled to Christ. Our ministry of evangelism is a priestly ministry. We want to go and offer a cleansing to the world. We want to mediate between them and God by virtue of presenting the gospel. Um, And that priestly connection ties right into Jesus' strong call to discipleship. Remember, remember how Levi got its priesthood. Radical, supreme loyalty to the Lord. Let's go to Luke 14 now and look at Jesus say something really similar and wonder whether or not it really is hyperbole. Luke 14, 25. Now great crowds accompanied him And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife and child and brother and sister, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That sounds an awful lot like what the tribe of Levi was commended for in obtaining their priesthood. No, No, I don't for a second think Jesus actually wants us to hate our relatives, but the demand for absolute loyalty. And if you have to choose between their displeasure and mine, you choose theirs. If you have to choose between being faithful to me or faithful to them, you you choose me. I, I think is absolutely consistent with and absolutely on the same trajectory of what was expected of the Levites. You know, and, and so <laughs> the standards are still the same. As God's priest, that level of loyalty is expected of us. And Jesus does not bait and switch. Jesus is the anti-seeker-sensitive person. He, he's got massive crowds. Okay, guys, I don't think you're getting it. You're either all in or go home. And that's what he says. But in the backdrop of understanding Levi and the Levites, that's really similar language. And when the New Testament makes it clear, those who are Christ's disciples are a holy nation of priests. Oh, because those who've answered his call choose him above all else. 
He's the treasure in the field they sell everything else to obtain. He's their God. And we are out of time. Thank you much, and I will see you next week. God willing. Amon or something tonight, so I don't know.